Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Pick up your phone calls here. I just wanted to very quickly point this out. A book, The 30 Stages of Genocide from Genocide Watch by Gregory Stanton, reposted over at DU by K. Pete who would just find some of the coolest stuff. The 10 stages of genocide. Number one, classification. People are divided into us and them. Number two, symbolization. People are forced to identify themselves. Yes, I am a refugee. Number three, discrimination. People begin to face systematic discrimination. Number four, dehumanization. People equated with animals, vermin, or diseases. Remember when Steve Miller and Donald Trump were talking like this? At the beginning. In infestation was the phrase that they used. Number five, organization. The government creates special groups, that is to say specific types of police or military, to enforce the policies specifically against this group. Number five, we've already passed all five of these, right? Number six, polarization. The government broadcasts propaganda to turn the general populace against the group. Trump coming out, they're robbers, they're rapists, they're gang members, it's the worst of the worst. A poor pathetic woman who called it. Oh, the reason the Democrats don't want a secure border. That's such nonsense. The Democrats want a secure border. Everybody wants a secure border. Come on, this is just a, a simple lie. Number seven, preparation. Official action to remove and relocate people begins. This is seven out of ten stages of genocide. And then number eight, the beginning of murders, theft of property, and trial, and massacres. Number nine, extermination, wholesale elimination of the group, although it's called extermination rather than murder because they're not considered human. And number 10, denial. The government denies it ever did that crime. And, you know, here we are. I wanted to name again the children who have so far died in the Trump camps, the Trump concentration camps. Daryl Christabel Cordova Valley, 10 years old. Seven-year-old Jacqueline Calmont Makin. Eight-year-old Philippe Alonso Gomez died in the Trump camp. 20-month-old baby Marie Juarez died in the Trump camps. Carlos Hernandez Vasquez, a 16-year-old, died in the Trump camps. A two-year-old Wilmer Jose Ramirez Vasquez died in the Trump concentration camps. Juan de Leon Gutierrez, uh, 16 years old, died in the Trump camps. Thousands of these children are now lost. We have no idea what happened to them. We don't know if they've been sold to people. We don't know if they've been adopted out. We don't know if they're in the hands of rings of child abusers and molesters. I mean, we just have no idea. 
And let's just, you know, keep in mind, you know, Anne Frank, the, the iconic victim of the Holocaust, she was not gassed. She was not, quote, killed by the Nazis. I mean, she died in the hands of the Nazis. She was killed by typhus because of poor sanitation at the camp. And we've got, now Trump has, in his concentration camps, he's got these kids sleeping in their own excrement for weeks at a time and eating junk food and Kool-Aid. And we're paying $750 per day per child to private prisons to keep these kids in dog kennels where they're sleeping on concrete floors with a tinfoil blanket in the cold with no blanket and no pillow and they're crying, mom, I want, and the adults are not allowed to touch them. You know what happens to children when they don't get affection, when they're not held, when they're not hugged? It's, I mean, this is, this is the story of the Romanian orphanages, the kids who, after Ceausescu was killed by his own people, the, the, the dictator of Romania, because he had, 10 years earlier, absolutely outlawed abortion nationwide in Romania, made it completely illegal. And the result of that was hundreds of thousands of unwanted babies. And they had to set up these huge state-run orphanages. And they would just have 100 babies in a giant room, each one in its own crib. And you know they'd come through and feed them, and that was it. They got no affection, no touch. These children grew up without the ability to connect with people. They, their intellect was stunted. Their ability to experience emotion was stunted. In some cases, they ended up essentially psychopaths as a result of this. It broke them. And that's what Trump is, do, is trying to do to these children. I really think this man loves the cruelty. I genuinely do. One of our callers talked about calling Kathy McMorris Rogers' office, who's her member of Congress. And Kathy McMorris Rogers, of course, is not just a Republican, but she's in the Republican leadership in the U.S. House of Representatives, one of the very few women in Congress who is actually a Republican. Tragically, I mean, must be just some kind of soulless person. But in any case, she called Rogers' office and said, you know, I'm really upset about the camps. And the woman who answered the phone said, well, that's because the Democrats won't appropriate money. And she was like, you know, what, do you think I'm an idiot? I mean, Donald Trump can take money out of the Pentagon budget to build his wall, uh, a, so A, there's money around. B, you don't need a congressional appropriation to pay for soap. You're already paying $750 a day per child to these private prison corporations that John Kelly's on the board of now to house children in dog cages. So please call your members of Congress, and if it's a Republican and they try to give you this BS, you know, respectfully, nicely, keep in mind the person answering the phone is not your member of Congress. And in many cases, they're just interns who are trying to get some experience in Capitol Hill so that they can put it on their resume. I mean, they're generally, generally very decent people and young people. Don't be nasty, but just say, you know, no, I'm sorry, I'm not buying that. You know, I, you know, I know that Fox News is lying to me. So how do the Democrats play this? Because they do need to reauthorize humanitarian aid to the southwestern border. Congress is trying to get four and a half billion. But some of the Democrats, and this is splitting the Democratic caucus, some of them are concerned that the money will be used by Donald Trump to increase deportation raids and tear more children from their families. Anyhow, picking up your phone calls. Jeanette in Richland Center, Wisconsin. Hey, Jeanette, what's on your mind today? I am just totally devastated by lawyers going into Clint, Texas and 
telling of the deplorable situations there where eight and ten year olds were asked to take care of diaper babies. Now, what I'm hearing from Pence. He comes on like a zombie on Jake Tapper. And when Tapper asks him, don't you have responsibility? Well, Pence says the responsibility is to fix these immigration laws. And then Pence said he hadn't been in in, uh, retention centers for two months. But they were down in Miami at this rally. Were not all these Republicans? And how far is Homestead from there? And there's money in this. We have John Kelly, who was the advisor to Trump, now is a director of one of the largest companies. We're paying these companies $750 per child per day to keep them in dog kennels. I'm, I'm absolutely with you, Jeanette. It is an outrage. It is an absolute screaming outrage. And we all need to be calling our members of Congress. And we, you know, we had a caller earlier who said that he called Kathy McMorris Rogers' office, you know, the Republican member of Congress, and, and said, uh, you know, I'm horrified by what's going on in the Trump camps. And the person who answered the phone said, well, that's happening. You know, the kids can't have soap because the Democrats won't appropriate the money. That is a flat out lie. And when you call your Republican, if they try to say that lie to you, just the response is, well, Trump was able to find $5 billion to fund his border wall that Congress never appropriated. Why can't he find $5,000 to buy soap for kids? I'm not buying it. Don't try your lies on me. Corky in Hilton, New York. Hey, Corky, what's up? There's no empathy in this guy. How can you treat kids like that? I don't care what's wrong with you. Well, John Kelly said that, and Kirsten Nielsen confirmed this, that this policy, this so-called zero-tolerance policy, yes, under the Obama administration, if a child came across the border and they thought the adult with the child was a child trafficker or a kidnapper or something like that, they would separate the child from the adult. That happened a f- you know, yeah, probably a few thousand times over the course of the eight years of the Obama administration. But that's a whole different thing from taking children away from people that you know are their parents. That's the new policy of the Trump administration. And Kelly said that we're doing this to give them pain, to cause pain to these children and to cause pain to their parents so that the story will get back to Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua. It's so terrible in the United States, you shouldn't even try, which is insane. And what it also tells us, Corky, is that these people, knowing this, I mean, this is well publicized in Mexico and south of Mexico, that this is what's happening in the United States, and knowing the hell that these people are going to be subjecting themselves and their children to, they're choosing to do it anyway because at least they'll still be alive. They have their their older children are being subject to rape, their younger children are being subject to murder, uh, or are watching their parents murdered, they're being recruited into gangs, or the gangs are torturing them or, or terrifying them. The farmers have lost their farms because climate change is, is killing the crop yields there in Central America. You've got large chunks of it starting to turn into desert. Another story that you know is well known around the world doesn't get much get covered here. So yeah, spot on, Corky. Thank you very much for the call. Barbara in Kingston, New York. Hey, Barbara, what's up? So I spent the day calling representatives and I just wanted to let people know that AOC has two bills if we're going to go through the slow process of making change that way so if people could contact AOC and give her support and ask their representatives to support these two bills one is that there be more judges to process the people the asylum seekers and the second bill is to stop the separation and to abolish ICE 
I am fully supportive of all of the above. I called, Tom, they're all lame. They're all like writing letters or something. And every woman I know is outraged about this. And we need to ask our representatives hey. to hold public forums so we can express our disgust at this yeah. inhumane situation. And, and the men I know are are outraged about this too in fact it's uh, this is just a, yeah. a crime barbara thank you for the call mark watching free speech tv in valley washington hey mark what's on your mind today well did you happen to catch democracy now yesterday i did not i've been on the road i haven't been able to catch pretty much any media right, well, other than the uh, they had, print they had stuff. A, a lady attorney warren binford on that had visited one of the concentration camps outside of el paso Oh, I've read some of her to, some of her testimony. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Yeah, and I'm she sorry. was actually able to talk to the children right. and get tested and, and and directly. And this is what they did. Did you happen to catch what they're feeding them? Mm-hmm. It's Kool Aid and crap. Um, you know, or crap food, junk food. You know, they're 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 you know they get a burrito in the evening. They're it's all processed food, which is poison yeah. for for adults, for that oh. matter. It's it's also poison for children. No fresh food at all. So I called um, my congresswoman, McMorris Rogers, which is almost a waste of time, mm -hmm. but I have to do it to feel better. Yeah. And I confronted them with the fact that uh, they're not feeding the children right, they're not clothing them right, they're not housing them properly. And the rebuttal was that the Democrats are blocking funding that they need so they can do this, and they just have run out of stuff. That's why this is happening. Yeah, that's a lie. Well, yeah, I know that. And I told him, I said, no, 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 we, are paying, we are paying $750 a day per child to have these yeah, children know, kept in dog cages. It's ridiculous. And I, I told, I told the, the, the person on the phone flat out, I said, no, no, don't pull that with me. I'm not one of your ignorant voters. I know what's going on here. Yeah, well, the other the other rebuttal mark is if Donald Trump can take can can grab five billion dollars out of the defense budget and reallocate it to use to build his wall, he can certainly find money someplace to get soap, clean diapers for little children, and a mattress so that they're not sleeping on a concrete floor. Don't assume I'm an idiot. Yeah, here's what really scares me. Okay, mm -hmm. I go to the gym and I also been going to a doctor and or a podiatrist, and there's a, a, a black aid. 60 years old, right around my age, and he's a Trump supporter. And then there's another gentleman, about 66, I see at the gym that's an avid Trump supporter. And when I bring this stuff up, it has no effect. Right. They're like, the parents shouldn't have brought him here. I'm like, they're innocent children. These are people who've been brainwashed. They literally have been brainwashed. They are victims of Fox News and right-wing hate radio. And there's no other way to say it. And, you know, we have to have compassion for them. And if they are true believers, if they're not willing to listen, we just have to stop talking politics to them. There's, you know, you're not going to change their minds, frankly. No, in fact, very often what happens is you cause them to dig in even harder because if you give them an argument, they'll go back to their right wing sources to find the counter argument. And it's like friends don't talk Trump with friends, I guess, you know, and unless they're willing to talk to each other. But it's like trying to talk somebody out of a cult. It's like trying oh, to yeah. tell a Scientologist that L. Ron Hubbard was just a science fiction writer and the whole thing is a scam. And, I mean, and they lost. both consider themselves like evangelical Christians. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, to tell them to read the book of Matthew. Mark, thank you so much. Great to hear from you.
So for Father's Day, uh, Louise and I went out and climbed a mountain. Well, part of one. <laughs> and boy, am I sore. And, uh, you know, then I had to go back and sit in my, in my office chair. And, and I was, you know, I'm, I'm working on this next book. And it's like, ah, why? Because it's the X chair. The X chair provides customized support in an office chair. I mean, when it comes to supporting perfect posture, providing ideal back support, no office chair compares to the X chair. The secret is the X chair's dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL. This patented feature is what sets the X chair apart from every other office chair in the world. Ideal posture and support equals comfort, and when you're comfortable, the hours spent in the office honestly fly by. Feel the DVL difference for yourself. Try an X chair for 30 days completely risk-free. X chair is on sale now for a hundred bucks off. Go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. You can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X wheels for your X chair. That's xchairtom.com xchairtom.com You're listening to Tom Hartman. Alice, you're on the air. Hey, Alice, what's on your mind today? I don't know. I guess they're sending these to everybody from the Republicans. Mm -hmm. It's called this election project, and there's a big survey, Trump agenda survey, and with it comes a scathing letter against the Democrats' And it's upset me totally. This letter is Mm. awful and horrible. But at the end, in the survey, you fill it out. But I'm not going to send it in because I think they might use it against me. They want you to contribute X amount of dollars, from 25 to whatever. But then, in the box at the lower part of the survey, it says, if you can't afford to send anything now, that's okay. But we would request you send $15 uh, for the processing fee. <laughs> Just wanted to make you and your listeners aware. That's what That is amazing. That is I know. absolutely amazing. Horrible. What they said in this letter about us. What did they say about the Democrats in the letter? I'm curious. Oh, Mike, it, it's a two-page letter. If I could Who's send it from? to you or email it to you. Oh, my goodness. No, I'm, he, you can you can just you know describe and uh, is is this one of the oh Democrats want open borders you know that yes. lie yes okay mm-hmm. uh, and we are um, okay yeah we're seduced yeah Alice but thank you for the call uh, that it's, it's uh, I agree that is terrible Lem in Sylvia North Carolina hey Lem what's on your mind today. I just want to tell you that I would gladly take care of a couple of those children for what they're paying. I think saying, yeah. saying $750 a day is... Yeah, is foster not- parents get, you know, in some, you know, I, it varies from state to state. But, you know, when Louise and I were running a facility for abused kids in New Hampshire, and this was for kids who were so severe in their damage and their behavior that they couldn't live in a foster home. But back then, and you know, keep in mind this was in the 1970s and 80s, so no, the I, dollar was I, I, worth more back Tom, then. But but back then, Tom, foster I families in, in New Hampshire got 125 bucks a month. If you're talking about 750 dollars a day, I'd like to make 273,750 dollars a year. 
which is what that is. Yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I was just trying to point out the insane disparity. You know? Each one of those children, that's like $42 million a year for, for a, a camp with 150 kids in it. Saying and now you know, Lem, why John Kelly is on the board of directors of one of these companies. Yeah. I could afford to buy soap. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, and maybe a mattress, too. Lem, thanks a lot. It's great to hear from you. Elizabeth in West Hollywood, California. Hey, Elizabeth, what's up? Hi. Remember when Bushy Boy was president? And before he was president, he was in the Air Force Reserve, but he abandoned his position. And because he was a president's son, he got away with it. And then he Yeah, he went AWOL for a year. Yeah, and he never got prosecuted for that, which he should have. And then he started the war in Iraq, and I felt way back then, anybody that's in charge like him who starts a war should have his children be the first on the beach. His daughters, not some cushy job in an office someplace, but I thought they should be in a service on the beach with the regular soldiers. So following that reasoning... I think Trump's son, Barron, and his grandchildren, Ivanka's children, should all be in one of those camps, and they can prove how wonderful they are. And, and I think it's just unconscionable what they're doing to those children. It's just disgusting. Yeah. You know, Elizabeth, I, I, I share your sentiment. I don't know how to turn that into legislation, but I absolutely share your sentiment. Mary in Warrenton, Oregon. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Glad to speak with you again. I was reading Andrew Sullivan's articles about this stuff, and I mm -hmm. think this man's got a real good point. I, are you familiar with him? Oh, I've, I've uh, been familiar with Andrew Sullivan for years, sure. Well, what he's basically saying is when it comes to Democratic issues, we know what they are. It's, you know, it's health care, the environment, education, progressive taxes, et cetera. And we all know where we stand on those things. But when it mm -hmm. comes to immigration, the Democratic policy seems to be dreamers. And then it goes, part two is called GOP racist, and three, hand-wringing. We don't have an immigration policy. And what, what this guy's saying is, is that Trump's number one issue, immigration, which keeps his base riled up, which is immigration, at which he has totally failed, is immigration. And the Democrats have no response, is immigration. Elizabeth Warren has all these policies and plans. She doesn't have one on immigration. None of them do. Wow. And what he's saying is that Democrats need to take over immigration, just like they did health care, the environment, saving Social Security, all the Democratic issues. We need to make, in 2020, immigration needs to be the Dems' number one issue. Solve it. Take it by the horns. Make it our issue. Tighten up the borders. Make reasonable laws. Add funds to all these things we want to do. Take care of the dreamers. Have a policy. But the thing we've got to remember when we take over all this and say that and make it our number one issue for 2020 is that we cannot solve the white anxiety of all these so-called racists. I mean, the GOP has a lot of racists. They used to be in our party. Now they're in their party. But the other ones are growing it because of their fear of immigration. That's what's expanding the racism and the hate is immigration and all the other non-white issues. 
And so what it is yeah. is white anxiety. You don't address that as they're sitting and watching the world change to a non-white majority. Their fears and their anxiety about this is real. And you can't help people and bring them over by calling them racist. We have to address their anxiety about this. One of the things okay. that Republicans said to white people for centuries, you know, for decades, particularly in my lifetime, was black people are coming to get your jobs, right? And they use that to divide white from black people. Now they're saying to black people, Hispanics are coming to get your jobs and to white people. You know, they're using this to split people. So that fear is actually largely an illegitimate fear, but it's being fanned by these right-wing think tanks and by the Republican Party and all that stuff. Jason in East Lansing, Michigan. Hey, Jason, what's up? Hey, um, I just wanted to talk about AOC and the concentration camps thing. I think that she's mm -hmm. completely right. Her language is technically correct. I think that to say never again, you don't have to have people in ovens to say that. You can be in the process of leading to extreme action, not maybe not that extreme. I think that to focus on her language, though, is to miss the point. And the reason why they do that is because they don't have a lot to criticize her about. She is a very, very popular politician. I think that they fear her. I think that Donnie Deutsch, he, he went on MSNBC on Morning Joe, and he said that he would vote for Donald Trump over Bernie Sanders. So it just tells you the kind of person that he is. He has no principles. Yeah. And with yeah. I'm with you. Jason, thank you so much for the call. I'm totally with you. And that's that's not even centrist. That's that's milk toast. That's BS. That's that's you know weak need. That's pathetic. Uh, Bobby in Skokie, Illinois. Hey Bobby, thanks for listening to AMA twenty. What's on your mind today? I'm actually an undocumented immigrant and I've been living in this country for over 20 years, you know, we played by the rules. My grandparents were U.S. citizens. I had a great-grandmother who was a permanent resident. We came legally. My grandparents applied for us. We waited in line for many years to become permanent residents. Both of my grandparents passed away two weeks before the interview, and my mm -hmm. great-grandmother passed away. So we've been stuck in this process forever. You know, there is no way wow. for us to legalize. There's no way for us to apply to do anything. So when people criticize and they say, well, you've been here for so long, you know, how come you were never, never able to apply and, and legalize? The system is so broken. I mean, there's no way for my family to legalize. I have two kids that are U.S. citizens that were born here, but I just wanted to talk about there's, there's, there's tens of thousands of people that are in my situation. And it's just unfortunate they asked us if we can maybe get a substitute sponsor, you know, to take the place of my grandparents as sponsors. But it's impossible because there has to be a close family member and we don't have any in this country. So that's how important immigration is. I'm so sorry to hear about your situation. This is what happens when, you know, we had a, we still need, you know, comprehensive immigration reform. We need to clean this stuff up. But what is going on right now? with the Trump administration is just an absolute mess. Uh, it's just an absolute mess. I mean, this is something that we've got to get fixed, and we've got to get it fixed quickly. Mike in Winnicone, Wisconsin. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? My thought is that at some point we're going to have to atone for what our government is doing, no matter what we think of the president and the people that represent us. We're going to have to atone for these children because it's all done in our name. 
whether we like it or not. Citizens of Germany had a tone for what was done in their name and had to go into the concentration camps and clean them out. So, you know, Mike, you know respectfully, I, I agree with your sentiment, but we have not yet atoned for torturing people during the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. Uh, we have not yet atoned for slavery. We have not yet atoned for the slaughter of Native Americans. You know, it's a noble sentiment, but... Uh, well, our you know, reckoning's coming. <laughs> I, you know, I think so. You know, karmically, I completely agree with you. I, I completely agree with you that there is a reckoning coming. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. Steve in McLean, Virginia. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Hey, I want to continue this uh, conversation about the children and also about the religious right. Uh, first of all, I am a Christian. been there for a long time. I like to fly to the fire. I go to, um, sometimes I go to the Franklin Graham website. I've never seen him mention one thing at all about these children and this really despicable treatment at the border and with these concentration camps. And basically what I did was I posted about this on one of his posts. And, you know, I say, why don't you have any outrage about this? And what I got back was a very negative uh, reply from uh, someone who, you know, claims that these are satanic lies and all this stuff. And it really, really makes me angry. There are things that sometimes a person has to put out. They just have to put out. It has to have a voice somewhere. I just want to put out the, the voice. And I appreciate all the callers and all the um, things like talking with representatives and stuff like that. And that's all I'll say. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Well said. Uh, appreciate the call. And uh, D in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, D, what's on your mind? Oh, just so happy that you are here at this time in this generation because you create an opportunity for us to do critical thinking, which they pulled that out of our educational system during the Bush administration. However, I just want to say Trump's donors are making $70 million a month on these kids. They're on 3,000 kids. 70, this is just a kid. No, it's well, more like 15,000 kids, actually, nationwide. The, the 3,000 number, I think, are the children who've been separated from their parents. Then there are kids who came over with aunts or uncles, people who are not their parents. There are a few of the older kids, you know, 15, 16, 17, who came just on their own. Those children are also in detention camps. It's, it's in the neighborhood of 13 to 15,000. Nobody actually knows for sure. But anyhow, back to you, Dee. Basically, they donated to the Trump administration, and they're being repaid back with multi-million dollars. Oh, you're talking dollars. the lobbyists and the companies that are running these private for-profit detention facilities, these concentration camps, they donated to Donald Trump. There's too much money here. So Trump is making profit yeah. off of the destruction of kids. And these kids, when they cry, you do realize that they are being tortured. They are being drugged. Some of them are being strapped into chairs. I mean, if you go to the ACLU and, and some of these other websites that monitor what's going on, it's, it's, we're just seeing, a, it's, we're not even seeing the tip of what, what these kids are going through, as well as adults. Um, I believe uh, you're right, Dee. And, and by the way, they keep the lights on 24 hours a day. That's defined by the United Nations as torture. We, we made them the other. Where are we as Americans? You know, when we were wearing the, the hats, the pink hats, where are we as Americans to stand up in droves and say this should not happen during this time? We as a country call ourselves a Christian, pro-life Christian society. I mean, you know, uh, whatever the case is, but that's how we want to look at ourselves as God 
has is crying right now. You can, you are not allowed to even call yourself a Christian with what's going on. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to take it there. Okay. Who would Jesus detain? Right. <laughs> Who would Jesus would detain? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think, you know what, Mike Pence, you know, Jesus said, suffer the little children to come on to me, which is archaic language. It means, you know, allow them to. But I think that uh, the, the Pence is taking that literally, make the little children suffer. I can't figure out another reason why a guy who calls himself a Christian would do something as reprehensible. Dee, thank you for the call. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the Fred chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Diane in Bodfish, California. Hey, Diane, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's on your mind today? Well, uh, I live in a very rural area, and I had written a letter to the editor to our local newspaper, and it was regarding what's happening at the border, and I gave the definition of concentration and why these people are fleeing the area that they're trying to escape from. And I called the paper to ask them when this was going to be published, and they informed me they were not going to publish it. And I asked them why, and they said I was being disrespectful. And I said, well, I to thought newspapers were biased. <laughs> and she just says, nope, you're being disrespectful. We're not going to publish it. Disrespectful so to the president? You know what? I was so shocked by her reaction that I didn't proceed to why and who I was being disrespectful. Yeah. I would, would, would imagine it was the president. But I just couldn't believe they wouldn't publish it. That is mind-boggling. So many of these papers, I mean, our, our paper in Oregon, uh, the Oregonian, used to be an independent newspaper, and it got bought up by, uh, you know, a company out of New York State. There's a handful of these fairly large companies now that are buying up local papers all over the country, and many of these companies have a, a fairly explicit right-wing bias, which is, uh, you know, really, really unfortunate. Thanks a lot for the call, Diane. Thanks for the heads up on that. That's a, a sad story. Seamus in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Seamus, what's up? Hi, uh, thanks for answering right? my call. My question was if there's any way that Congress could, like, enforce the laws regarding migrant status, because it just seems like Donald Trump's trying to make it impossible for... I think you mean refugee status, to, right? Yeah, like, he's, like, trying to make it impossible for anyone to come to the border and get that status. Right. Yeah, the law, both the U.S. law and international law, is very clear. If somebody presents themselves at the border of any country, but, you know, speaking of the United States, if somebody presents themselves at the border or if they're 
even within the country, and they present themselves to authorities, and they say, I am seeking asylum, I am a refugee, I am fleeing from fill-in-the-blank, right? I'm fleeing from persecution, I'm fleeing from violence, I'm fleeing from political persecution, you know, whatever. There has to be an adjudicative process, a legal process. They have to go before a judge and make their case and then the judge will determine whether their case is solid or not. And if it is, then they can stay in the country as a refugee. And then there's about a 10 or 15 year process if they want to apply for citizenship. And if the judge says, no, we're not going to accept your asylum request, then they get put on a plane and sent back to where they came from and uh, or stuck on a bus or whatever it may be. And that's the law. And it was working fine before. And what we found was that we've just largely seen this huge wave of refugees over the last five years, really over the last four years, because there's been a five-year drought in Central America as a result of global climate change. And it is wiping out the crops. And Central America, the economy of these countries, of Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, the, the principal driver of the economies in these countries is agriculture. And so all these small farmers are being wiped out and, they, and they've got nothing. And when, when you wipe out a local economy like that, um, what you do is you throw the whole region into poverty. When you throw a region into poverty, uh, crime emerges. Uh, when crime emerges, gangs emerge to control the crime. And then the gangs start you know, becoming the enforcers. And you get these uh, Lord of the Flies places, uh, essentially. And that's what people are fleeing from. They're fleeing from violence. But the violence is being caused by the poverty, which is being caused by, by five years of serious drought down there in Central America. So our laws are that you know, people should be able to apply for asylum here. Refugees should be able, able to apply for asylum. And during the, the George Bush administration, during the Barack Obama administration, during both all 16 years of those two administrations, you know, people would apply for asylum. And this is the so-called catch and release that Donald Trump says he wants to stop. They would be given a court date. They would be released into the United States and said, okay, you know, September 16th, you got to show up in court and we're going to decide whether or not you're going to get refugee status. Over 95% of those people showed up for their court dates. And I've seen some numbers as high as 98%. But the Trump administration trying to create a crisis where none exists is lying about this. They're saying, oh, well, these people don't show up. They just want to go, you know, they're going to go off to someplace and get a job. That is not the case. And uh, you're right, Seamus, this is U.S. law that the Trump administration is defying, which is why there's so many lawsuits against them around this right now. The ACLU is leading some of the largest ones. And it's also a violation of international law, which is why the U.N. spoke out about this. So spot on. Seamus, thank you for the call and thank you for pointing that out. It's a good and important point. I wanted to talk about this horrible picture that's making it all over the Internet and is on the front page of The New York Times. The front page of the New York Times, you know, not a lot of people see this because it's the print version, but the front page of the New York Times, the upper third of it is a, a giant picture, you know, six by eight inches or thereabouts, a color picture of this man and his daughter dead on the bank of the Rio Grande River. His name is Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez, and he's from El Salvador. Here's what happened. First of all, he had tried to present himself to U.S. Customs. He tried to present himself at the border, but the Trump administration has basically said, no, you know, we're taking this little, little tiny number of people every day, like, you know, some 20, 30 people at each border crossing, and uh, you can't present yourself at the border functionally. So what they were trying to do was swim across the Rio Grande so that they could then present themselves 
to the border officials who would, you know, quote, arrest them so that they could make their case before a judge that they were actual refugees fleeing violence in El Salvador. Violence, I would add, that to some extent was caused by Reagan administration policies, but also by climate change, which I'm going to get to in just a second. He and his daughter, that little girl that we see in the picture, successfully swam across the river. They made it to the other side, to the U.S. side. They were alive. He set her on the bank of the river and said, wait for me, I'm going to go back and get mom. He swims back to get his wife on the Mexico side, the Montmoros, Mexico side, and his daughter is freaking out. Dad, you left. And so his daughter jumps in the water. His daughter, by the way, her name is Valeria. So dad tries to grab the daughter, and in the process of grabbing the daughter, the current sweeps them away and drowns them both. They're hanging on to each other, and they get washed up on the bank, dead, holding on to each other. And increasingly, it's looking like one of the real reasons, in addition to the damage that Ronald Reagan did to Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala, and Honduras, for that matter, back in the day, back in the 80s, with the whole you know, war on elected democracies that Reagan waged because you know, Reagan was all about autocrats and you know, right-wing corporate-run governments, that climate change is having a huge impact on this thing. There was a testimony at the United Nations by an expert who said that climate change is leading to massive global inequality and human rights disasters. He called it climate apartheid in which the rich can pay to flee the consequences, right? Wealthy people in these South and Central American countries can get a visa, a visitor visa to the United States and fly in here and just overstay their visas. Poor people don't have the resources to get an airplane ticket or even for that matter to apply for the visa. And so, you know, they're trying to cross at the border to, to ask for refugee status. And that's just the smallest example of this. I mean, you know, the same thing is happening with North Africa and Europe and, and we're seeing this all over the world. Philip Alston is the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty in Human Rights. And he says that climate change could push another 120 million people into poverty just over the next 10 years. He says climate change threatens to, this is a quote from him, threatens to undo the last 50 years of progress in development, global health and poverty reduction. Public Radio International, PRI, had a great story on this. Uh, that climate change is the overlooked driver of the Central American migration. They said many of the members of the migrant caravans are fleeing a massive drought that's been going on in these countries, in El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador. For the last five years, this drought has been going on. John Sutter, a senior investigative reporter for CNN, went down to rural Honduras to report on climate change and immigration. And he said that while, yeah, they have periodic droughts down there, this time it's lasted five years. This is absolutely unprecedented. The crops don't grow. We had climate refugees here in the United States during the 1930s. Dennis Weaver and his family were one of them. But this was a local climate phenomena caused by deforestation. Now we have a global climate phenomena. And these people who are fleeing Central America, fleeing drought in Central America, are just like Dennis Weaver and his family who, you know, packed up the station wagon and headed off to Oregon fleeing the Dust Bowl. And this five-year drought in Central America is driving this thing, and there's no discussion of this in the American media. I mean, maybe they don't want to offend, you know, big oil companies, or maybe it's just like something nobody's paying attention to. It's not anybody's radar. But I find this extraordinary. You know, I wanted to put that out on the air, share that with you, that what we're looking at here is as 
a climate disaster as much as anything else, as much as a, you know, Ronald Reagan messed with their country's disaster. For the Tom Harmon University Book Club today, we're reading from a book written by my old friend, Dennis Weaver. He has passed away. I wrote the foreword of this book, just FYI. It's called All the World's a Stage, and it's Dennis's autobiography. Dennis Weaver, Chester and Gunsmoke, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's talking about early in the Depression. This is from page uh, 17, just kind of telling his early life. Early in the Depression, it became clear he's talking about the 1930s when he was a young boy. Early in the Depression, it became clear that people had to come together and support each other, or many would just not survive. Not being cooperative and neighborly was not an option. If our neighbors were in trouble, we would not think twice about helping them. We just did it. I remember a family named Hardy bought the 10 acres next to our farm. There was nothing on that land except woods. The men in the surrounding area got together on weekends to cut down the trees and made logs to build a house, a real log raising. Within six or seven weekends, they built a log home for the Hardy family to live in and a shed for their cows. Children had lots of fun. We played games and jumped from stump to stump while like leaping frogs while the men sawed logs and hammered nails. Ladies brought covered dishes of food like potato salad, baked beans, and jello, and we had a picnic at lunchtime. It was a community thing, a gathering of friends, and to this day, I still carry the feeling with me. In those times and moments, despite the Depression, we thought we had the best of life, and in a way, we really did. Life was simpler. We knew how good it felt to be neighborly, to share our lives with each other. The national economy was shredded due to the crash of 1929, but in our area, including parts of Missouri, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Texas, the problem was exacerbated by what was known as the Great Dust Bowl. Continuing droughts had dried up the earth, and the fierce winds picked up the defenseless soil and made huge clouds of thick, swirling dust. Visibility often shrunk to a few yards. Most skilled and determined farmers were humbled before its wrath. The nutritious topsoil was all blown away, and agriculture came to a screeching halt. At the time, I didn't understand it, but it's crystal clear to me now that our economy and our environment are interdependent. When the environment at that time was destroyed and the farmers could no longer farm, they weren't the only ones who suffered. The economic disaster for the farmers spread like a raging virus to carpenters, plumbers, shop owners, and even bankers. Okies by the thousand piled whatever possessions they could salvage into cars, trucks, any jalopy that would run, and headed for California, which Dust Bowl victims considered to be the land of milk and honey. Perhaps the only one who profited from the Dust Bowl was John Steinbeck when he wrote The Grapes of Wrath. Because of the Dust Bowl, our farm was not financially successful. It certainly helped to feed the family, but the extra income my folks had hoped it would generate did not materialize. Mom, always trying to find a way out, heard from neighbors who had fled the Dust Bowl in our devastated economy earlier that the strawberry picking was good in Oregon. There was money to be made just for the picking. So we gave up on the farm and moved back to my birthplace in Joplin, 619 Brownell, to get ready for the trek west. Furthest west I'd ever been was Blackwell, Oklahoma. Would I see a real-life cowboy? I wondered. What would Oregon be like? I might even see the Pacific Ocean. Our budget for the trip was minimal at best. Like the pioneers who crossed the Great Plains 100 years earlier, we were obliged to carry our own supplies because motels and restaurants were out of the question. Unlike those earlier settlers, the horses that carried us were not hitched to a wagon, but were under the hood of a 1928 DeSoto. Our plan was simple. Mom, Howard, and Mary Ann, two years old by this time, Jerry, Denzel, Bell, and I would go to Oregon and pick strawberries and do what other jobs we could get. We would save our earnings and come back to Joplin in time for Howard and me to go back to school. 
Dad would stay behind, keep his job at the Empire District, and serve as a safety net for us. In case we broke down or got stranded, he could bail us out. Denzel was a carpenter by trade. He put his skills to good use. He built a cupboard on the back of old Betsy, our DeSoto, where we could store an ample supply of canned goods and food staples. By releasing a fastener, the backside of the cupboard opened up and a leg swung down to support it. And lo and behold, we had a table on which to prepare the food and off of which we could eat. We jammed the storeroom with supplies, gave old Betsy a final mechanical check, said our farewells, and headed west for the wild blue yonder. Although she never hinted at it, I'm sure Mom must have had a few qualms and trepidations. For me, it was just the beginning of what I imagined to be a great adventure. We started out for Oregon in the late spring of 1934. In those days, there were no four-lane interstates, just two-lane roads that were often in need of repair and full of detours. Our top speed was 40 miles an hour, so driving to Oregon was no walk in the park. Not long after crossing into Colorado from Kansas, we could see on the horizon what looked like a triangular cloud. It was strange because like the other clouds moved, this one didn't budge. We used it as a guiding star for more than two hours before we realized it wasn't a cloud at all. It was the snow-capped top of Pike's Peak. As we drove deeper and deeper into the Rocky Mountains, I was moved more and more by their sheer beauty and breathtaking grandeur. It was awesome. I loved the majestic granite mountains, the tall pines, the quaking aspens crisp, dry air. It was all very magical to me. I guess I'm back in Colorado today because I was so impressed with it as a child. I was not only impressed by the beauty, but by what it had to offer. This was the first time I'd ever seen a real live working cowboy. and It was the first time I'd ever seen a real deer. We were driving over Wolf Creek Pass at dusk, coming around a bend, and there right in front of us was this wild deer running down the road in and out of the shadows. Book All the World's a Stage, Dennis Weaver's autobiography. The forward by Tom Hartman. If you believe that you're not being snooped on or that nobody cares about your online data, well, then I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you're wrong. Hackers, governments, and ad companies all slurp up your data. That's why I recommend getting the software that I trust to protect my online activity, ExpressVPN. Their apps use powerful encryption to secure your data. ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer or phone, and then you use the internet just like you normally would. You download the app, click to connect, and you're protected. I never go online without ExpressVPN, and you shouldn't either. ExpressVPN is the fastest VPN, costs less than $7 a month, and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Take back your online privacy just like I did with ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com tom. That's expressvpn.com tom for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com tom. That's expressvpn.com t-h-o-m for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com Tom to learn more. You're listening to Tom Hartman. <laughs> we are live from the uh, Bricklayers District Council, number one. This also is being brought to you by Smart 265, the Painters District Council 14, GWC Injury Law Firm, the Roofers, Waterproofers, and Allied Workers Local 11, Operating Engineers Local 399, and WCPT, our local affiliate here in Chicago. We're going to be talking about the debates last night, what was happening in the debates, what we think about what was going on, and, and also, you know, how this affects labor, how all these things are affecting, you know, basically all of us, you know, what's going on here. And welcome to our studio audience. Thank you so much for showing up, listeners of WCPT in Chicago, and thanks to WCPT in Chicago for, uh, 
for sponsoring this thing and helping put it all together. So, Jim, let me start with you. Um, a, I'm curious, your take from a labor perspective on the debates last night, and also, you want to just introduce yourself and, and start this thing. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I'm uh, Jim Allen. I am the president of the Bricklayers District Council in Chicago. We represent bricklayers, tile setters, tuck pointers, plasters, precast erectors, marble setters. So I watched the debate. I'm sure a lot of people here watched it as well. The only issue I had with so many people on there, it's, it's a little difficult. Yeah. But let's put it this way. Any one of those people would be a great candidate to beat Donald Trump. Yeah, I said over breakfast, you know, if they resurrected Richard Nixon, I'd vote for him over Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, so would I. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, the, the debates were good. It's a little, like I said, it's a little difficult with so many people, and again, we're going to do it again tonight. Yeah. Interesting stuff. A lot of things that affect middle class, which we are. Uh, the unions represent middle class, and uh, there was plenty of things to talk about. Immigration is... Uh, you know, it's a tough subject for everybody. Give you my take on it. Well, give me your take, and I'll sure. see if I agree. Back, you know, <laughs> back in 1986, Reagan, you know, after the whole uh, immigration reform and amnesty program was passed, Reagan basically stopped enforcing the law. And this was part of his war on labor, in my opinion. We don't have the hot documents like they do on the, the Supreme Court just ruled right. on the, the question for the census. You know, we don't have the actual proof, but... It sure seems to me like this was part of Reagan's war on labor. It used to be prior to 86, if a company hired somebody who wasn't here with a work permit or wasn't here with documentation, that they could go to jail or at least they got huge fines. And Reagan stopped enforcing that. And within a decade, you know, and I remember this well. I mean, one of my brothers was a union roofer. I remember this really well. Within a decade, you saw construction trades that the employers were just hiring people who really shouldn't be working in the country. And A, we should make sure that everybody understands this is, there's a difference between somebody who immigrates to this country looking for a job or looking for an op economic opportunity and these people who are escaping, you know, insane violence in El Salvador right now that right. goes back to Reagan's policies. But when Reagan stopped enforcing those laws and employers started all this crazy hiring, it wiped out, I know for sure, construction trades, and, and I understand it wiped out the meat packers, and it probably impacted some other unions. And neither Clinton nor Obama ever started reinforcing those laws, frankly, I was waiting for somebody last night to say, you know, we just need to enforce the laws against employers and we need to also enforce the laws about immigration in a positive way or about uh, refugees in a positive way. These people, most of these people who are presenting themselves at the border right now, there's actually been a net negative flow of people out of the United States over the last, well, since the recession of 2008. People leaving this country who came here looking for work. And now the people coming here are literally fleeing for their lives. It's a completely different thing, and we need to separate those two things. And we need to say if people are, want to come here for work, they need to get a work permit, just like in any other country. So your thoughts on well, my thoughts. And I've heard you speak this before on your program, and that is the fact. Once you took away the penalty for the employer, it opened the door. Yeah. And, uh, and I do remember you saying that about your brother losing his job. Well, that hasn't changed because right now in the city of Chicago, you have union projects, a lot of work, people making decent living, benefits, everything. And then you have the non-union, which is the direct result of what we just talked about. So mm -hmm. you have illegal workers. It doesn't matter their nationality. They're not, they're not all Hispanic. They could be Polish, Russian, Bosnians. We well, have, in fact, a lot of them are. Well, most of them, It's just yeah, Trump doesn't talk about them. No, he they doesn't. have white skin them, yeah. instead of brown skin. <laughs> they are, they're white skin, and that's why he doesn't talk about them. But the fact is, 
they're working here and they're not, you keep hearing the same old story, well, these are the people that are cutting our lawns. Well, they're not cutting our lawns. They're building eight-story buildings. John Spiros uh, is here with the painters right across from his union hall. Same thing, just being built with all non-union workers who are getting beaten up on wages. Most of them are probably illegal, threatened. If you say something, you go talk to the union, we're going to deport you. I'm going to call, you know, uh, get you deported is what they'll do. And it just never ends. It's gotten worse and worse, and I've been around a long time in this union, and it hasn't changed. And that is the direct quote from Ronald Reagan, which what he did. And I can remember, you've said that many years ago. Yeah, he set out to destroy labor because labor was the principal constituency that was funding the Democratic Party. So cut off the money, kill a party. And we still are the only ones that fund anywhere near the Koch brothers, our money. And even his new tax bill for the billionaires that allows no deductions for union dues anymore. Yeah. So now maybe that ticks off people and they go, I don't pay union dues anymore. Well, that's a perfect scenario for them. Right. Screw the unions. Yeah. So, shall we get some other? Yeah. Louis Cairo, partner in the GWC Injury Law Firm. Louis, your thoughts on the debates last night um, and the issues? Actually, I was, uh, I had an obligation with another union, and I didn't see it, but I watched a lot of the news programs late last night and this mm-hmm. morning, and I found the, the debates to be a little more of a, unfortunately, uh, a little more of a beauty contest. Like mm-hmm. Everybody is trying to get out there, and they want people, they want the American people to know who they are show their smiley faces, say a, throw a couple of buzzwords out there, speak a little Spanish if you want to español. I mean, it's like trying to be, it's not like they really discuss the issues. I think when you get that, when the debates get tighter and tighter and you get five or six candidates and they can really focus on issues, everybody will know at that point, everybody will know who these candidates are. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll get a better impression. I think everybody said the right thing. Nobody said something that was blasphemy. Like, oh my God, you're scratch that one from the list. They yeah. all try to make a good impression. They all bashed Donald Trump, rightfully so. Which is a good thing. You know, I've Mm -hmm. I've heard people say, well, you know, why talk about Donald Trump? During the Republican debates, they were always bashing Hillary Clinton. And that actually hurt Hillary Clinton. So the debates are a platform for America to hear this Trump bashing in a way that might be actually effective if they could pull it off. Pardon my interruption. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, as Jimmy said, I think the crux would would anybody who watched that program last night and you'll watch it tonight, I think everyone's going to come to the same conclusion. I'll take any of them yeah. over who we presently have. Yeah. There you go. And I'll work for them. Yeah. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a good dog. If we can get him sworn in, I'll put my dog in there. <laughs> He'd do better. He'd do better than what we've got. Jim Allen, the president of the, the uh, District Council of BACADC. Okay. Sounds sort of like badass. That's kind of cool. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So anyhow, you know, I was thinking, listening to this thing last night, and some of the quotes that I thought were really, you know, important and consequential. Senator Elizabeth Warren talked about hiking taxes on big corporations as part of, you know, her plan. She says, you know, who is this economy really working for? It's doing great for thinner and thinner slices at the top. It's doing great for giant drug companies. It's just not doing great for people trying to get prescriptions filled. It's great for people who want to invest in private prisons, just not for the African-Americans whose families are torn apart and lives are destroyed and whose communities are ruined. You know, the reality is that when Dwight Eisenhower was president, fully one-third of the federal budget was paid for with corporate taxes. One-third. Right now, it's 6%. 
And it's probably lower than that. I mean, that, that statistic is probably five or six years old. We might be down to two or three percent right now. And this is one of the reasons why average working people are saying, hey, you know, why are my taxes where they're at? And of course, the billionaires, you know, they're not paying their fair share of taxes either. So you add all that together, and this is the mess we've got. Senator Cory Booker, he said, we have a serious problem with corporate consolidation. You see the evidence in how dignity is stripped from labor and people who work full-time jobs and still can't make a living wage. We see this because consumer prices are being raised by pharmaceutical companies that have holds on drugs. But O'Rourke said, right now we have a system that favors those who can pay for access and outcomes. That's how you explain an economy that's rigged to corporations and the wealthiest. And then uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said, we're supposed to break up big corporations when they're not serving our democracy. And that's a real interesting one because back in the 1880s, 1881, I think it was, Senator Sherman of Ohio proposed the Sherman Antitrust Act that passed through Congress. This was a response to these giant conglomerates that were forming all over the world. And it was, you know, a serious effort to try to break some of them up. Not much happened over the next 10 years, or maybe even arguably 12 or 13 years, as a consequence of that law being on the book, until Teddy Roosevelt became president. And then Teddy Roosevelt started breaking up companies, and then Taft, after him, who was another progressive Republican, but a progressive Republican, two of them in a row, Taft broke up twice as many companies as Teddy Roosevelt did. So we understood back in the 1880s, and as a consequence of the Sherman Act, we really got it that the whole point of this was to say that if a company gets so big that it's damaging to a community, if a company gets so big that it's damaging to competition, if a company gets so big that it's damaging to its employees, if a company gets so big, or a group of companies get so big, a monopoly essentially, as Rockefeller was doing with Standard Oil, gets so big that even their product is, you know, sucks or can, and there's simply no competition, then you should break that company up. Well, starting in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, this weird theory came out from Robert Bork, of all people. Robert Bork proposed this idea that the antitrust laws should be re-understood to only consider one thing, the price consumers pay, period. And if the price consumers pay stays low, you don't need to break up these companies. The Supreme Court adopted that in either 74, 75, or 76. It was one of those three years. And basically, we've been enforcing our antitrust laws that way ever since. We need actual legislation to overturn that Supreme Court decision, which would not be particularly complicated, so that we can again start breaking up these big companies. Right now, we've got Republicans who are literally trying to have religion taught in our schools. Oh, yeah, right. Democrats need to start saying, we need to teach the history of labor in our schools, damn it. I mean, this is real stuff. Thank you so much to all the groups, to, to the bricklayers here who have hosted us, to, to our studio audience. Thank you. Thank you to WCPT. Um, thank you all for being on our panel. Uh, John, Dan, uh, John, John, and, uh, and uh, Jim, thank you so much. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us to participate. So get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.